start uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have been in this series called Equipped. We have hailed into this verse in its entirety. I didn't bring my Bible, I must have left it in there uh, for Bible study. But we have focused our attention on what God says about us, what God says about our situation, what God has said about how we should live, and how we are to act. When it says all scripture is breathed by God, that means that God himself has essentially penned every word. Now, this is the thing that we're at, and this is the, the crossroads that we have to be at here. Is number one, we have to accept the fact that the word of God is just that. It's the word of God. So if God appears to you in your bedroom tonight and he gives you a mandate, he says, this is what I want you to do. God himself appears to you. You would do whatever it is he said to do. No questions asked, right? We would, you'd be moved by that. But yet, for some reason, when the mandate of God is in written form, we kind of loosely adopt it as a part of our life. We look at it like, yeah, I know, you know, I probably should, and things like that. There's so many debates going on and, and whatnot. But then here's the thing. The reason the church is in the same shape it is today is because the foundation of Scripture has been lost. We utilize Scripture as a piece to the puzzle. But we're more focused on our experiences than we are what Scripture says. And there's a problem with that. Because I don't know if you know this, but your experience might be different than somebody else's. There are people that will never go in the door of a church again because they had a bad experience. Which I find ironic. Okay? Because they say, oh, I can't, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. I, this bad thing happened. This pastor said something. This lady said something. Whatever the case may be. I'm never going to church again. Let me ask you this. You ever gone to a restaurant and had a bad meal? Did it stop you from eating? It's a ludicrous argument. What it is is nothing more than an excuse. So, your experience is irrelevant. My ability to portray the image of God does not change who the character of God is. You guys get that? In other words, I am not who you should look at. You should follow me as I follow Christ, but I am not the example of the character of God. You know why? Because every once in a while I lose my temper. And it's a good thing I don't control the spider. There'd be a lot less people on this earth. You ever gone through traffic? They all go. Right? Go to Oklahoma. They drive like maniacs down. So the thing is, is that we have been focused on what is Scripture saying to us and understanding the foundation that is. So we have turned our attention towards prophecy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands it. However, the Spirit speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. Now, we have looked at this idea of what this is. We looked at these three things. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. And remember what we focused on. The definition of these words has not to do with the word itself, but the word giver. The promise is in the character of the one who has said it. You guys following me on this? Because you've got to get that. It's not that it's written in the Bible that makes it true. It is the fact that the Bible is capturing the promises, the character, the word of God. That's what makes it true. Words on a page aren't necessarily true. Read a newspaper, you'll find out. Right? It has nothing to do with that. It's who said it that matters. That's what matters. And so when we look at this and we, we talk about prophecy, we look at these three things. It's not the words that are being spoken. It is the character of God. We find edification, exhortation, and comfort not directly in the word because you may receive a prophecy that is not flowery. It may not feel good in the moment. But the promise of God is captured in his character, and that is what we lean on. We know what he had promised. Think about when, when the prophecies are going forth about the seven years of famine. But then there'll be seven years of plenty, or vice versa, I should say. What is he doing? He's preparing them. He's saying, listen, get ready. Batten down the hatches. Store up some treasures here. You're going to need it. 
Who wants to go through seven years of famine? Who wants to go through seven days of famine? Some of us, thank you very much, can't go through seven minutes of famine. We'd starve. We wouldn't know how to act. But God was preparing them. Now, what did they know? God had always promised that he would keep his nation Israel. Always keep a remnant. So no matter what had happened, God had set them up so that they would not lose hope. When they were in captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for plans to prosper you. Or a hope and a future, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. What was he doing? I know it seems bad now, but I have never let go of the promise to you, Israel. You see, that's the problem. We get moved by what we see and what we feel. We watched it happen in March when all of a sudden the virus comes about and everybody's freaking out. Should the church have been moved in any way by an illness? Not if you believe the word of God. We shouldn't have been moved by it. I'm not saying being crazy. I'm saying that we should in no way be afraid of something, anything. I, You know, there's all this talk about the economy's going to crash at any moment. It's a bubble of getting ready to burst. Who cares? Because my provision is from God and not from the feds. I don't care how much money they print. I don't care how much they send to me. It doesn't make any difference. My provision comes from God. So it always comes back to the promises and God fulfilling his promise. That's what Hebrews 10, 23 says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Do we waver? You better believe we do. Should we waver? That's where we should. But admitting the fact that we do, that we are moved by circumstances, there are sometimes scary times that are going on, what do we do? We've got to go back to what we know. It's no different in the military. The reason they drill things over and over and over again is that when the event arises that you need that training, they want you to default to it without having to think about it. They teach you that in wrestling as an example. That your moves are done out of reaction because you're so, you drilled that thing so many times that when somebody tries something, you just, it just happens. My brother, as an example, former cop, he's now a locksmith. I don't know how those two things tie together. But he went out, he got called out uh, to Flatsmith. He said it was a white Ford pickup down by the river and they locked the keys in the truck. Okay, not exactly great direction, but gave him an idea. So he pulls down there and he sees a white Ford pickup by the river. So what would you do? You'd get out of the truck, right? He gets out, he starts walking up to it, and a guy pulls a gun on him. And his reaction, because he was a cop and he was trained, he immediately had his gun. He always carries with him. He immediately had his gun out. He said it didn't even he didn't think about it, it just happened so fast because that's what he was trained to do. It turns out there were two white Ford pickups, and the one he wanted was a little further down the river. Ironic. But again, it's like it just happened. It wasn't like you put, oh, I need to pull mine out too. It was just reactionary because he was so trained. That is how the church needs to be today. We need to be proactive, not reactive. We need to know that the promises and word of God is so much so that we've accepted it as truth that when crisis hits, we are not moved. That's where we need to be. It's not where we are. That's where we need to be. So with that, coming back to the idea of what we depend on the promise of God, we began to look at what promise God had given for this time that we're in. In other words, the Christmas season. And it is full of traditions. And we began to talk about this last week. The idea of the Christmas tradition comes from this picture here of the nativity. And I'll tell you, the only accurate part in this whole thing is Mary, Joseph, and probably the baby. The rest of it's kind of sketchy. But the thing is, is that we, we bought into this, and we never asked the question, like, well, where did we come to these conclusions? The idea is that Mary is scrambling around, trying to find a place to stay, because they had to come in for the census. Couldn't find any place, so they find a barn, or they find a, a cave, or they find something. And she gives birth there, the shepherds show up, the wise men show up, Jesus is in the manger, yada, yada, yada. As I showed you last week, none of that is accurate. They weren't scrambling after they were there for the census and in the process of time, it came time for her to give birth. There wasn't a mad dash. The word in does not mean hotel. It means the guest room, and I showed you the picture of that, what that looked like, because in a Jewish household, when the family comes back, they all stay with family, just how it worked. And so, you know, the, the upper room was the guest room, and there was a lot of people there, and probably no room. So they went somewhere to have the baby. And when he appeared to the shepherds, these weren't any shepherds, but these were Levite shepherds. They were part of the temple service who raised the Passover lambs. 
And I showed you the tower of the flock that's prophesied and talked about in Micah 5, how it was called the Migdal Eater. And that that is the tower of the flock. So when the angel appeared to the shepherds, he said, here will be the sign. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. But he never told them the address. He didn't tell them where to go find them. They had no trouble. They didn't go knock door to door. They knew where to go. So they took off, and what did they find? They found Jesus being born, or he'd already been born, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. It should be the manger was made of stone, and that the swaddling cloths, and this is the tower of the flock where the Passover lambs were born, and that they had to be without spot and blemish. And so when a newborn lamb was, was born, they would take it and they would wrap it in swaddling cloths and lie it in that manger until it had calmed down and then they could let it go. Because if it had a bruise, if it had a broken leg, if it had anything wrong with it, it didn't count. And they could not sell them. It was all very prophetic. It was all a picture of things to come. That's how they knew exactly where to find him. There was no problem with this. So that's powerful in the picture itself because Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Passover Lamb. So when you see that, it's like, man, that picture makes so much sense. But let's go on to the next one. Let's look at the Magi. We see this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, uh, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. And when the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, Well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, what is the tradition? The tradition is you got three wise men. And those wise men showed up, they talked to Herod, and they went there and they said, Hey, where's he at? And Herod's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And so he said, well, and you'll see this here in a few minutes. He's like, well, they'll go find him. You saw a star in the east. You go find him. And when you find him, you get back to me and let me know exactly. That I may worship him with you. And so they come and they, and they show up there. And he's lying in the manger. And they bring their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh. The problem is, is that's not how it happened. The reason we believe that is because tradition. Like the song, We Three Kings, as an example. There were kings. The reason that they say they were kings is about the 13th century, they started tradition and they gave them names. They said, oh, these were the three kings. But I can show you that that's not accurate. And I can show you that it very likely wasn't three. So who are the Magi? Well, we'll get there in a minute. Now let's look at this verse one more time. We see that it was after Jesus was born. We may see that. There we go. After Jesus was born. Does it say how long after? It does not. Could it be the day after he was born? Could it, be, could it be the minute after he was born? It could be. Could it be the month after he was born? Could it be. Could it be the year after he was born? It could be. Can we draw any conclusions from this verse? No. It just wasn't before he was born. Fair? Okay. Now you'll see later that it was two years later. Okay. You'll see this in a minute. So that was the first part. Here's the other part. Wise men from the east says nothing about kings. From the east, they're coming from Persia slash Babylon, that area. And they ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? What are they looking for? Messiah. Remember, the Jews are waiting on their reigning king to show up. Okay? So they're looking for Messiah. Why? They've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, here's the thing. This is what's interesting. It says when Herod heard the news, he was troubled. As you can understand, he's a ruler in Jerusalem. He's not the king, but he is a ruler. And you're telling me a king is born to the Jews underneath his watch. You know what that does to him? Adios. So he was troubled. But the interesting part here is so was all of Jerusalem. Now that doesn't make any sense because they only went to Herod. They didn't go ask him around, or at least it doesn't say that. So why was Jerusalem troubled? Did they like Herod that much? No, they didn't like Herod that much. So, as we get into this, we've got to understand who they are and how they recognize the sign. Number one, these guys were followers of what was called Zoroastrianism, big word, okay? It's one of the world's oldest religions. It comes from Persia, comes from Babylon. They studied uh, magic, philosophy, they were dream interpreters, they had all these sacred writings that they were looking at, and of course, astrology was one of the many things that they did. Now, the word magi is where we get the word magic or magician comes from that word. Now, here's the thing. They said they saw his star in the east. What star? 
And how do they know to expect a star? Have you ever seen the verse that talks about the star would be the sign that the king of the Jews had been born? You haven't. Let me show you one. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Now, I'm not saying that this is exactly it, but it could be it. Numbers 24, verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tamal. Now, understand what this is. This is figurative language. A star is coming out of Jacob, Jacob being Israel. Okay? A scepter is always mentioned in use of a king. Could this be the verse that they looked at? Possibly. I'm not saying that this is the verse, but it's a possibility. When we see Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Is that what he's a reference? Is this a title of his, perhaps, the bright and morning star? Well, he just said it was. Now, some will argue, well, that's Venus. The bright and morning star is Venus. Some will say that this was a, a just a, a normal star. It was maybe a constellation of some sort, maybe on the lining of the planets. In fact, we just kind of went through this. They were saying the star of Jesus. We haven't seen it in hundreds and hundreds of years, and it just happened with Jupiter and Saturn coming together and all of that. I don't think that that was it. I'll show you why here in a minute. So when they show up, they cause a ruckus, and they probably figured, hey, it's the king of the Jews. So if they know about it, who else should know about it? Maybe the Jews. It'd be nice to know. So they kind of figured anywhere they would go that they would get there. But how did they know? Because you notice they quoted out of Micah 5. How did they know that? These are not followers of Yahweh. They were not ones who kept the commandments. They were not ones who would uphold the scrolls. How did they know the prophecy of Micah? Well, they had to have been studying the Hebrew Scriptures. Only way, right? There's no other way they know that. It's not like Micah sent them a copy and said, hey, I want you guys to know this. So this is the only way they knew. Now, we'll come back to that as to why here in a minute. Now, what you got to understand is that this was not a short trip. It's about an 800-mile trip. Here's a map. It was started over in the area of Babylon, and this is the map that they believe was taken all the way up and around to Jerusalem, and then to Bethlehem. They would have been on foot or on camelback or something. It would have taken about 40 days. That's a long trip on foot. Okay? Now, as I said, they're going to show up when Jesus was around too. Now, they the thing is, is when I say with the star, I think it is something supernatural. I'll show you here in a minute. But the other thing is, is remember what Pilate said. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. In other words, when he was born, they came looking for the king of the Jews. We know that all Jerusalem is troubled. Is Pilate now saying, Are you that guy? I don't know. Maybe. It's interesting. So, they're looking for the king of the Jews. Pilate asked him, Are you the one that stirred all the commotion? Now, let's go to verse 7. Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back a word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them. And it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened the treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. Now, here's the thing. He determines the time from when the star had appeared. Later on, he's going to try to kill every male child two years or younger. This is where we get the idea that it was about two years later. We know it takes around 40 days for them to get there. So we don't know exactly where they are in this time frame. Why do we think that there's three? We think that because of the three gifts. But it never says that. The thing is, with these guys and any group of traveling often travel in packs. It could have been four. It honestly could have been several hundred. And the thing is, is that Jerusalem was in an upstir. They were, they were stirred up. Why? Well, if you get a bunch of Babylonians coming over and a big group into Jerusalem, 
you might get a bunch of Jews' attention. Why? Because it's happened before, and it didn't end well for the Jews. They were taken captive, right? So perhaps that is what they're thinking. Maybe that's why they're all stirred up trying to figure out what is going on here. So they likely would have traveled with a big group. Now they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is always a, a, a metal used in kingship. Frankincense is always used in the temple sacrifice and, and in their worshiping of God. They would burn that incense and frankincense. And myrrh is always used for embalming. And what's ironic about frankincense and myrrh, in order to extract that from the trees, they literally have to strike the trees. They cut stripes in the trees to extract it. So, this is all well and good. So you guys can see that likely not three, likely many. Not They certainly weren't there at his birth. It was two years later. The star, how do we know that the star probably wasn't supernatural? Because it moved with him. I mean, what star stays in place for 40 days? None of them do. Even 40 days later, for it to just go from the, in the east to over uh, Bethlehem is a stretch. Very likely something supernatural. I'm not saying it was. It could have been something that God set up. I mean, I'm not saying it was. But, but the thing is, is that it also could have been the kind of glory of God moving. No different than it was with, with the uh, Israelites in Egypt when they were traveling. The cloud by day and the fire by night. So it could have been any one of those things. But this never brings us back to the, the main crux of this. Is why are a bunch of Persians from Babylon the ones that are coming looking for the king of where do they get this idea, and why do they even care? That's the part that doesn't make sense, and that's the part we don't ask questions for. Because you've got to think of the relationship. Was the Babylonians and the Jews, were they just getting along really well? Did they like each other? No, not at all. There's a little friction there. Imagine Christmas dinner with the two of them sitting together. It'd be awkward. This all goes back to the time of Daniel. So I want to show you this. Instead of just telling you, it's in Daniel chapter 2. They've been taken captive, okay? And Daniel's going to get promoted up. Nebuchadnezzar's going to have a dream. And this is how the whole process gets started. This is in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave a command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And the, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to them, My decision is firm. If you do not make known to me, known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. No pressure. Don't just tell me the interpretation. Tell me what I dream. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive me from the gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. The answer again said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you will gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. He is throwing down the gauntlet. Because think about this. If you came to me and said, I had the craziest dream last night. I wonder what it means. I can tell you anything. And you wouldn't know the difference. If he tells them what the dream is, they can tell him anything. What does he know? He doesn't know what the interpretation is. It's no different than if all of us stood up and spoke Spanish, okay? I could give you the interpretation. It would not be the correct one. But you, well, you would know that. But if we were somewhere else where y'all didn't know, you'd have no idea. It's no different than we're in El Salvador, and we're preaching, and the interpreter is giving what we say. We don't know if he's saying the right words. All of it does, but we don't. We don't have any idea. Like, I hope we're doing good. I have no idea. So, again, he is making sure that these guys are legitimately giving him what the dream and interpretation was because it was something that really shook him. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or a Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods 
whose dwelling is not with the flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and furious, and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and he began killing the wise men, and he sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Why? That's interesting. Well, they're getting lumped into that, and we'll see that even more in a minute. But they have already been moved into this from chapter 1, into this group. So, he was not fooling around. They're all going to die. Verse 14, then, then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel uh, answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from God, the God of heaven, concerning the secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian name. This is their Hebrew name. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the season. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us a king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king uh, the interpretation. And king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and his interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, astrologer, magician, and soothsayer cannot declare to the king. So you see a big group of individuals here. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and has made known to the king to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be done in the latter days. So he's giving credit to God, right? The separation. Remember, the wise men said that not only the gods could tell them. And here he's making this is literally Yahweh. Your dream and the vision of your head upon your bed uh, were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after you. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me, because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation of the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, behold, a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone was struck. Uh, the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So we, we've seen this image. We've seen the imagery before because this is the end times type of stuff that's going on here. Verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of before uh, the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. They will not adhere to one another, just as iron is not mixed with clay. And in these days, of the day of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to the other. And people uh, to the other people, it shall break in pieces, consume all the kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. 
So again, Daniel is able to not only tell them what the dream is, but he also tells them the interpretation. If you tell somebody what they've dreamed, you're going to get their attention. And that is what's happening here. As you should know, if you don't, there's actually a part in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote. I mean, it is it is in Scripture. This gets Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Doesn't mean he was perfect, because we know he was. We know what happens afterwards. But look at what happens in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon, the same group that saw the star, the same group that knew to look for the star, the same group that knew that if you get there, that star represents the king of the Jews that came forward. How did they know? They were taught by Daniel. Passed down. They would have Hebrew scriptures that they studied them. You see, it all lines up. Now look at God moving the pieces into place to make that moment happen. That all is power. When you watch, this was not abstract. We treat it as if it was. Well, remember what I told you, and I've said it time and time again. God does not move in mysterious ways. He moves in predictable patterns. We know how God will respond to his word and his promises. Look at the steps that he took to bring forth the Messiah. It's pretty powerful. Now I want to show you one more thing. Because being in the book of Daniel, there's another part that Daniel gave dealing with the king of the Jews. Because remember Pilate looked and said, are you the king of the Jews? He says, as you say. He says "And another part is that my kingdom is not of this world. But Daniel is a big deal. He's a big deal in the Babylonian kingdom. In fact, when the image is made and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow, Daniel's nowhere to be found. Why do you think that is? He was on mission for the king, very likely. He wasn't around. He was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, likely as a young teenager when this happened. And when he reads the writings of Jeremiah, he realizes, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 9, he realizes that the seven years of captivity is almost up. Remember, why are they there? They didn't keep the land set. 490 years. Every seventh year, they're supposed to let the land rest. They did not do it, so therefore God allowed the land to rest there in captivity. They did not keep the commands. They chased after the bales, and so on and so forth. Daniel, reading the book of Jeremiah, realizes that this time is almost up, and he begins to pray and intercede for his people. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Let's look at this. I want to show you something. It's, it's every bit as powerful as what we just read. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. If Daniel reads that and doesn't take it as truth, how does he respond? He's like, well, I hope 70 years is almost up. I guess we'll wait and see. But he doesn't. He recognizes this. God set a firm date. This is going to happen. Verse 3, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I pray the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precept and your judgments. Neither have we uh, heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us, shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. So he's showing the difference between the character of God and the character of the nation. God is unmoving. God did exactly what he said he would do. Remember what he said, you keep my commandments, you'll be blessed, and if you won't, you'll be did God keep that promise? Absolutely. He told them, if you keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. What did they choose? They chose cursing. They made that choice consciously. So he is in here interceding for them. Verse 8. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Again, God's character. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which set, he set before us by his servants, the prophets. So it was all laid out for them. 
Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as to not obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Whose fault that they are in that situation? Their fault. Did God keep his promise? Absolutely he did. Daniel recognized it. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges, who judges by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Is he whining about their situation? No. He's not whining about it. He said, God, you were right in doing what you have done. It is our fault we are here. Verse 13. As is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. And the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made it yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Is God's judgment always righteous? Absolutely. Absolutely. And Daniel knows that. He knows why they're there. Is he making excuses for his people? No. Lord, this is what we've done. And you have kept your promise to us by bringing these curses on us. It's our fault. He clearly told them. Did Adam and Eve know the result of eating of the fruit? Yes, they did, and they chose to. Did these guys know the result of doing what they did? Yes, they did, and they chose to. And you see that he harkens back how you took us by the hand and brought us out of the land of Egypt, going back to a time that God did exactly what he said he was going to do in a mighty move of the Spirit of God, and yet they still turned their backs on him. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city, which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you. Because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people are called by your name. Now he's turning the attention to God. God, you need to do this for your name's sake. Verse 20, and this is where it begins to get interesting. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God and the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in the, in the prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, began uh, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make the end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And until the end of the war, uh, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate and even the, until the consummation, which is discerned, determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, we're getting into what's known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. This is why I'm going to show you this today. Because I'm not going to go into all the details about this. We're not talking about end times prophecy. I'm talking about the coming of Messiah and why this matters. Because this is the time that we celebrate this time of year. We've got so many traditions we miss out on the nuances. Now, if you look at these last four verses, 24, 25, 26, and 27, you basically got the scope of the entire prophecy in verse 24. You've got the 69 weeks talked about in verse 25. In verse 26, it talks about this interval that goes on between the 69th and the 70th week. And then in verse 27, you get the 70th week. So let's look at verse 24 one more time. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, what you've got to understand, and most of you probably do, because you've studied this somewhat, is you've got to understand what a yeet is. It's an idiom that is used. It was a common in Israel. It was talking about a Sabbath for the land. So one week was a seven-year period. So it, it was their failure to obey these that kept them into captivity in the first place. And so now this time is coming to an end. So he's talking about these 70 weeks that are being determined. But in verse 25, he gives us the time frame in those weeks of when they begin. Now watch this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, here's the thing. You've got the restoring of Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There's 69 weeks. This is a mathematical prophecy. When you look at the map on this, it looks like this. You've got 69 times 7, which is 483 biblical years. 69 weeks every 7 years. 483 biblical years. When you break that down into the number of days, it goes like this. You've got 360-day years for a total of 172,880. Why 360-day year? Don't we have 365.21674 days per year? When we do, we go off of a solar calendar. They went off of a lunar calendar. Remember, they were moved. The moon was what they tracked things with. All of the festivals were off of a lunar calendar. We didn't start the solar calendar until many, many, many years later. So if we go off of this, it tells us that 173,880 days are going to pass. You know what? That's a pretty, pretty matter of fact. I mean, you can't fake math. You know? I've worked with people financially, and the one thing that never changes is math. Like, 2 plus 2 equals 4, I don't care what Common Core says. It never changes. If you make $1,000 a week, you can't spend $1,500, you're not the government. Not how it works. You can't change math. So it's very precise in what he says. So when does it start? Well, in verse 25, it says, From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So... What's interesting here is we see this laid out scripturally because Gabriel tells Daniel the interval between the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of Messiah as king would be 173,880 days. So we have to know when was the command given? Well, it was given by this guy. You can kind of see him in the picture there. His name is Artaxerxes. Lomamanus. I don't know if I'm saying any of those right. And they have traced this through history, and they said that was March 14, 445 BC is the day that this command was given. You see this written on different scrolls. This isn't just a biblical thing. They got this through history. Now, I'm not going to say that every date that they ever give is 100% accurate, because what they do is they compile data. They did not run BC and AD at this time frame. None of that existed. This was years and years later when they began to go back and to get things uh, figured out. If, if you've been around here long enough, you know that I think some of the Egyptian dating is wrong. So, but based off of the map and what they've done, they've come up with March 14, 445 BC. This gives us our starting point. But what about Messiah presenting himself as king? Because there were several occasions during the ministry of Jesus where they, they were like, Are you going to set up your kingdom now? This is not my time's not here. Don't ask. Quit asking me. Time's not now. Why? Because he wasn't there as the reigning king yet, he was there as a suffering servant. But there was an event and a prophecy that declared Messiah as king. It's found in Zechariah chapter 9. First man says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, the king is coming when he's going to ride in on a colt, right on a little donkey. When did that happen? Well, we call that the triumphal entry. Let's look at that. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It sounds like something just read. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sat down on them. 
And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the heights. So they're declaring this is Messiah. So why did they go and get the donkey? That it might be fulfilled. Right? Matthew makes that very clear. Now let's read this out of Luke 19 because there's an interesting part here that I want to point out. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you. Where you enter, you will find a colt tied uh, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent uh, were sent their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? He said, The Lord has need of it. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he, uh, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing uh, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, anytime the Pharisees get involved, you know something's going right. Okay? Because they are constantly, you guys will see this here, I'm going to talk about the uh, Messianic miracles in the next couple of weeks. But the bottom line is this, is that the Pharisees were the ones that were always investigating anybody who was being thought to be a Messiah. Because there were several that had come before Jesus. There's been several that have come after Jesus. So he says, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are they saying that? Because this is a psalm, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a psalm about Messiah. And who are they saying? The king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is why they're getting so angry. They are making a declaration that Messiah, the king of the Jews, has now come. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stone should immediately cry out. Did he say that he isn't the king? No. He said nothing can stop. Now watch what happened. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now this is a prophecy by Jesus that was fulfilled in 70 AD the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. How do we know that it didn't happen earlier than that like in the book of Acts time or something like that? How do we know the book of Acts wasn't written after 70 AD? Because if Jesus gives a prophecy that's not fulfilled in scripture they would document that. They would document the fact that this has happened just as Jesus had said. We read that in Matthew, that it might be fulfilled. So we know that Acts was written earlier than that. But here's the thing. What's the problem? They did not recognize him at his coming. Did they have every opportunity? You learn about the Messianic miracles here in the next couple of weeks. But right here, it's a declaration of what's going on. Who didn't recognize him? The leaders of Israel. The Pharisees. They were the ones in charge of the same even at this time. So, we see, as he comes in, what we call the triumphal entry, Paul Sunday, whatever you want to call it, as the declaration of the king. Messiah the prince has come. So we see from the declaration given until the declaration that he is the king, 173,880 days is our target. Let's do some math. Don't we love math? We love math. March 14, 455 B.C., April 6, 332 A.D., that's our goal. They say April 6th because in 32 AD, they think that is when this happened. I'm not saying they are correct, but I do want you to see the math. So if we do the math from 445 BC to 332 AD, we get 173,740 days. Okay? This is what our target is. Go on to the next one. One more. There we go. 173,740 days. That's what 445 BC to 32 AD. I thought 332. Well, that'd be really, that'd be really late. It should be 32 AD. That's a typo. I'm not talking. You got to put that together. Now we've got March 14th to April 6th, which is how many days? That's 24 days. Now you add those together, does that equal 173,880 days? It does not, because you also have to account in the leap years and the leap days, which is 116 days. And could you imagine exactly what the math works out to be? It's 173,800 
in 80 days. Exactly what Daniel foretold. You see, there's a theory out there by Bible scholars who think Daniel was written much later in time because of the precision of the prophecies. Did God do exactly what he said he was going to do? Has God never done exactly what he said he was going to do? No. Every single time he has kept his promise. Now, we focus on this area because it's the time of Christmas and we talk about the birth of Messiah and all this other stuff, which is why we focus in here. But here's the thing. Has God's promises ever failed? No. Has God ever done something contrary to what he said he was going to do? No. So then why do we doubt his word? Now, you can tell me you don't, but your actions speak louder than your words. You see, you are moved by what you believe. You can say anything, but your actions tell me exactly how you believe. If you're short in an area, that's okay. We need to work on it. But every time, God has always fulfilled the promise. Do you guys see the precision? I mean, between last week and this week, the precision of all the nuances and all the details that God orchestrated to bring forth Messiah from the nation of Israel, it's incredible. And yet we question, like, well, does God really want me healed? And that's really what we're turning our attention to. Because he makes promises in his word. They're either true or they're not. So we've got to begin to dig into this. Because you'll notice that when Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, preaching the kingdom of God, and he did what? Healed the sick. Those three things were always tied together. And yet somehow we doubt that God wants to do that anymore today. Just some work to do. We're going to begin to dig into this stuff. I'm going to show you some of the more powerful fulfillment of prophecy that God has done. Because the whole point of this is that we will no longer say, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you know. We will no longer say, I know you kept those promises to those people, but you don't know my situation. God doesn't care about your situation in that sense. He cares about his promises. If you were having financial trouble and in your bank account was a million dollars, guess what? If you never tap into it, you still have financial trouble. We need to tap into the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Your precision in it is unmatched to any other writing in mankind's history. Lord, we thank you that you have kept it, that you have opened our hearts to it, Lord, in a way that we can take it in, grow an understanding of it, Lord. But more importantly than anything else, the purpose of all of this is that we see that you constantly keep your promises, that you have never, ever let us down. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word reveals your character. Your character is one who loves his people and has made promises that he will keep. So Lord, we give you the glory, and we thank you for all things. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great week. See you soon.